If you would turn with me to First John, we are walking through this book together. Um, if uh, if you're new here, uh, most of the time we will just take a portion of scripture, usually a whole book, and walk through it week by week by week. The great benefit to covering the scriptures that way is it's not shaped primarily by the personality of the person speaking then. And it, it forces us to look at things we might ignore or uh, resist talking about. And today is one of those kinds of days. Uh, this passage we'll look at today is, is serious and heavy. So uh, my obligation to you is to convey the same thing to you. Uh, John did so when he wrote it because he loved the churches he wrote to. And I will seek to do the same uh, because I love you. So if you have a problem with this, talk to Nathaniel because he's leaving. <laughs> All right? So First John chapter 1 is where we're at today. Uh, several times in this book, the author, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, says explicitly, here's why I wrote you this book. So that's helpful uh, for those of us like me that are a little dense. He spells it out very, very clearly. The first time he says that is in verse 4. So let's read that. It says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Joy is the ever-present pursuit of the human heart. Do you see it in yourself? Do you recognize that in other people? We're always, always, always looking for joy. It is the driving motivation in life. We'll see today that John says joy comes from being in fellowship with God and being in fellowship with God's people. That's the bottom line. He says, you will find joy only in a rightly ordered relationship with God. And then when you have that, you can be rightly connected to other people who know God. And that is the source of joy. That's where it comes from. So he uses that word fellowship to talk about that. Now, let's be honest. That's a pretty churchy word. Correct? So uh, when two friends go have coffee together, we call that having coffee. When a Christian and another Christian go have coffee, we call it fellowship. That's ridiculous. That's really silly. That's not what John's talking about. Uh, When John uses the word fellowship, he's talking about a whole lot more than simply two people having the same conversation that two lost people would have over the same activity. There's got to be more to that. John meant something far greater. In the Bible, we learn that it's possible to share in the very life of God, that God imparts his life through Christ, and that that life, that people that have that life together can share the experience of being saved by Christ and then be in real relationship together. So don't let that breeze past you. It's possible to know, love, experience, and joy and be empowered by the creator of the universe. Isn't that amazing? That the God who made everything that there is says, I offer you my life. And then because I want you to continually enjoy that, I've given you my spirit and My spirit lives in you. 
And then you get together with other people who also share that experience of being saved and having the Spirit, and you're continually fed and encouraged by each other. It's brilliant. That's what fellowship is. John's going to spend the rest of his letter telling us essentially this. There's things that hinder your joy. There's things that rob you of receiving and continually living in that life that Jesus has for you. There's obstacles to being in fellowship with God. Don't be okay with those things. Be vigilant about resisting them and turning away from them and helping each other do that so that you can continually experience the fellowship that God's given you. Essentially, the rest of the book is John just telling us that over and over and over and over in lots of different ways. Where he starts is pretty fascinating, and that's our topic for today. What one truth would you think John would most want us to know so that we could enjoy fellowship with God and with each other? A a shorter way of saying that is what truth about God is the fountain of joy? Now, if we were to go around the room and ask that question, I think most of us would probably say God is love. God is love. Or maybe some of you would say God is power, or God is everywhere, or God has always been. All of those things are true about God, but none of them are where John starts. Where John starts, I think perhaps hardly any of us would say. It's not the culturally popular way that we think about God today. Out of all the inexhaustible character traits of God, John could have chosen to talk about first, he picked the holiness of God. That's weird, isn't it? We'll attempt today to explain that by talking about three things. Number one, this declaration that John makes that God is light. That's what he's talking about when he talks about God being light. The fact that God is holy. He's pure. And then he's contrasting that with us. He says, God is light, but you, meaning all of us, are darkness. That's happy, huh? And then finally, he's going to tell us that there's hope, that Jesus removes sin. So God is light, we are darkness, and Jesus removes sin. Watch that as we read through this next section together. 1 John chapter, five, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him, that's Jesus, and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you were to visit with a friend or turn on a talk show tomorrow morning or 
scour the best sellers at Barnes and Noble, or even go see a counselor and say something like, I'd really like to be happy. I want to have joy. What do I most need to know? What should I do? The overwhelming consensus that you would find is people would tell you to look inward. Look at yourself. We think today in 2014 that joy comes from self-actualization. We think that life ultimately is about a personal quest for fulfillment. As Randy said so eloquently earlier, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And I'm irritated with him that he said that because it's literally right there in my notes. You're a jerk. We look to ourselves. We look inward. We look at self-esteem as the source of joy. We're told what's wrong with us is we have low self-esteem. We have a low regard for ourselves. But God, my brothers and sisters, gives a very different answer. He says, look not at yourself, look at me. Start with me. If you want to have joy, don't look inward, look upward. Start with me. John says, of all the pressing, urgent, most important things I could possibly tell you about joy, let's start with this fact. God. God. That is so different than the way we think. One pastor I read put it like this. He, meaning John, is going to transition in this book into your life, into your ethics, into your morality, into your conduct, into your motivation, into your thought life, into your actions, into your deeds and misdeeds. And as he works into that framework, he says, back up and begin with God. God is true north. We start with him and then reinterpret all of life around him. So... If I can accomplish one thing today, I hope it's that. That we would reconsider where we start and start with God. Okay, 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 you say. God, life starts with God. God is love, God is mercy, God is forgiving, God is generous, God is kind, God is gentle, God is ever-present, God is provider. Yes, 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 all true, but that's not what John says. That's not where he starts. He places the emphasis on God being light, God being holy. He makes this declaration in verse 5. This is the message we've heard and proclaimed to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What's the most important thing you need to know to have enjoyment and fellowship with God and his people? It's that God is light. It's that he's holy. Don't begin with yourself, begin with God. It's so easy, friends, to say, sure, I believe in God. Anybody can say that. But if God isn't the center of your life, if He's not what everything orbits around, if love for Him and obedience to Him is not the controlling gravitational pull of your heart, then you're destined for a life of fleeting joys. Because that is what brings true joy. God is light. He's perfect. He's holy. He's pure. He's good. He's the source of life. Imagine being a being who for all eternity has done nothing but right. 
always. Friends, John tells us of everything that we need to know, that's most important. So do you want joy? Do you want fellowship with God and His people? Then you've got to know that God's light and you've got to be a person of light. You've got to walk in the light. But that brings up the obvious problem. Correct? God is light and we are not. We are darkness. Let's read that portion again. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship, so shared life, connection. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness. Now obviously He's not talking about physical darkness, walking around without a flashlight. He's talking about inside, living habitually as a person in sin. We lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. So friends, to think rightly about God and to have joy, we have to think rightly about sin. And here's where this will get a little heavy. God is light. He is perfect. That's really good news. The bad news is, is that we continually strive to take the place of God. We constantly, it seems, shove Him off the throne and climb up there ourselves. We are people of darkness who claim to be people of light. That's sin. Now, we could say it more casually, of course, something like this. I'm a good person. I obey the law. I'm nice to strangers. I open the door for cripples. You'd be surprised how few people do that. I do my job and I go to my classes. I give a few quarters to the poor when they're standing with signs. I'm a good person. But Jesus says, you're a liar. Because inside, that's not true. We can clean ourselves up with moral behavior, but really inside we're busted, broken, dark people. Charles Spurgeon long ago said it like this. The idea of having no sin is a delusion. You're altogether deceived if you say so. The truth isn't in you. And you've not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day. And you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and weigh your motives. Or you would detect the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. As salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. Friends, the gospel is the great news that God is light, that everything revolves around Him, that He's perfect. It's also the message that we are darkness. You can't have one and not the other. So let me try and paint with a broad brush stroke for just a few minutes. Not everybody's going to fit in these categories, but maybe you're like the a person who I'll never forget a few years ago 
in our small group, Jill and I were leading, said, I see in the Bible you say, it says, I, I'm a sinner, but where did I sin today? I, don't, I wasn't a sinner today. I did, took care of my kids. I changed their diapers. I dropped the other one off at school. I went and got a massage. I had lunch. I picked the kids up and I came home. Where was I a sinner in that? So again, this won't fit every circumstance, and I'm going to use buckets to talk to you, but think in these categories, if you would. To the kids in the room, do you know how you've been given five, six, seven, eight wonderful gifts, and then mom or dad or grandpa or grandma says, I can't afford that, I'm sorry. Have you ever had not what flows out understanding and graciousness, but you're a jerk. What do you mean? Life's not fair. How could you do that? Have you ever done that? It's not because life isn't fair. It's because you're a sinner. Young men in the room, middle school, high school, college, guys in their 20s, are, are you aware of the fact that so quickly a glance towards a beautiful woman, turns from admiration of beauty into lust. Like that. It's not because you're simply in this culture. It's because you're a sinner. Young women, so middle school, high school, college ladies in your 20s, are you aware of how many of you orient your entire life around what other people think about you? Your, your heart seems to beat for that. Now, this will be a little shocking, so I'm warning you ahead of time. But let's take one example, all right? If you go home today and listen to the number one song on the Billboard Top 100 list, you'll hear a song called All About That Bass. <laughs> all right? This song is about a young woman who mother, whose mother tells her, It's okay to be fat. That's what the song is about. So that's not a bad thing to tell your daughter, is it? This means yes, this means no. (laughs) It's not a bad thing for a mother to tell your daughter, it's okay to be big. But she doesn't tell her daughter that because beauty is fleeting. She doesn't tell her daughter that because skinny models are airbrushed. She doesn't tell her, mother, her daughter that because any man who only wants you because you're skinny is not a real man at all. He doesn't, she doesn't tell him that because your worth is tied up in the creator of the universe and what he's done for you. She doesn't tell her that because beauty of character is far more important than physical shape. The key line in the song is this. Boys like a little more booty to hold at night. That is the song our broad culture is celebrating right now as liberation for women. A song that's supposed to expose and be freeing for women merely says you can be big because boys like that. That's crazy. That is insanity. Young ladies, why do you find it to be so difficult to be satisfied with who God made you to be or what you look like or what shape you are 
what other people think about your personality, how many friends you have, what clothes you wear. I could go on and on and on and on and on. Why? It's not because that song is on the radio. It's because you're a sinner. That's why the song is popular. All right, enough picking on the young ones. How about the middle-aged men and women in the room? Your struggles are different. If you have kids and they're out of the house, (laughs) be honest about that. What's your first thought when the kids leave? Is it, my house is freed up. Now I can invite some college students to come live with me. I can mentor them life on life. Is it, my church has needs. I'm pretty set at work. I've got enough money in the bank. I'm not rich, but I have enough. So I'm going to start volunteering a day or two a week. Let's be honest. Is that where your mind goes? Nope. Apart from God, the thought is, finally life can be about me. It's like a second adolescence kicks in again. And look around you. There's not a lot of you here. Why? Because that's what they're they're doing. It's not because you've earned it. John says it's because you're a sinner. I'm almost done. Seniors, I love you. I'm really glad you're here. But John doesn't let you off the hook. Why is it that the massive temptation in your final years is to dig in over minor things? Why is it that there's movies called Grumpy Old Men, not Grumpy Young Men? Why? On the surface, it's easy to say it's because your body hurts every day. It'd be easy to say that it's because the most likely gathering of your friends is a funeral. It's easy to say it's because you have limited mobility and energy. But John, when he wrote this letter, was old. Some people think he was 90. There are stories in church history about him being carried up to the front of his church at that age in Ephesus, sitting in a chair because he couldn't stand on his own any longer. And what he would say is not complain, not gripe. He would say, children, love each other. Love each other. Love each other. At the deepest level, senior years tend to bring negativity Not because it's hard, but because we're sinners. Friends, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Joy and fellowship with Him are possible, but we're separated by God because of our sin. We turn good things into ultimate things all the time. And at the level of motive, don't you see how easy it is that turn even the good things we do into things poisoned with selfishness. Every time that door opens, it sounds like the ceiling is going to cave in. (laughs) Could we make a note to fix that? (sighs) Have you noticed how quickly you put your hope in government or education or finding a spouse or rescuing a wayward child or getting healed from a disease or... Have you noticed how quickly we turn to all those things instead of trusting God? 
Friends, we could go on and on and on. We are endlessly creative in the ways we come up with sin. We look to degrees and health, the shape of our bodies and who we date, how well we do at school, how successful we are in the field or in the business office, who we last saw naked, how much we have in retirement, what people think of us. All of these things are simply what the scriptures call sin. And John says, if you don't see that and you say to yourself, I don't have sin, I'm a good person, then you've simply deceived yourself. So God is light, we are darkness, and to turn away from that is to call God a liar. But there's hope. There's hope. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, one of John's chief concerns is that our mouths would not claim more spiritual health than our experience reveals. There is an indelible line drawn between our beliefs and our behavior. So he says to us, You say you're right with God, but does your behavior plainly show that? Not your behavior makes you right with God, but is your behavior increasingly more like Christ? Is it more in the light? Is there less things you need to hide and cover up? He tells us, don't claim you don't struggle with sin. You are a sinner. Instead, run to Jesus. I love the way Tim Keller says it. The test of whether you're a real Christian, the test of whether you have fellowship with God, the test of whether you understand the gospel or whether you're just a nice person or religious or moral person, but not a real Christian, not a person who understands the gospel. How do you know the difference between the two? How you experience sin and failure. Isn't that good? Friends, Christians admit sin. They run to Jesus. They confess their need. They fall at his feet for mercy. Christians trust that Jesus died for them so they don't have to. Christians take God at his word, that he's faithful and just and cleanses us from sin. They don't pretend they're not people who struggle with sin. It's not that being Christian means we're morally perfect. It means that we know we're not. Non-Christians or those who pretend they're believers say they don't have sin. But when we fail, we admit it. We run to God for forgiveness. We confess it to each other. That's what we do. Friends, the basis for the Christian's hope is not a lack of struggle with sin. It's not the presence of things that are hard to overcome. It's that Christians know they're right with God only because of Jesus. That's the difference. And John tells us that through two words that we don't often use, advocate and propitiation. Jesus is our advocate. He's our helper. Brothers and sisters, when we sin, what we need is a helper. We need Jesus. Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. He cleanses us from sin. He forgives us. He intercedes for us. He lovingly, patiently, and passionately says to the Father, 
don't count that against her. You already counted it against me. I died so she doesn't have to. The father delights to say yes to that. Jesus delights to be your advocate. Isn't the gospel amazing? And Jesus is not just our advocate, he's also our propitiation. That's a massively big word. It simply means that Jesus takes the wrath of God for us. All the sin we've talked about today will either be dealt with on your condemnation when you die, or it's already been dealt with by Jesus at the cross when he died. The gospel really is that simple. You choose. Jesus or you? The gospel is the message that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial, substitutionary, in your place, wrath-taking death, and rose victoriously. As a result, God is making everything new. If you're a Christian, confessing your sin to God has the effect of bringing you back into that joy of your salvation, into that right fellowship with God. It reminds you that Jesus already took the wrath for you. And there's none left. If you're not yet a Christian, repentance starts the relationship with God. It begins a life of repentance. It transfers the weight of your sin over to Jesus' shoulders whose loving arms were spread so that you could die with him on the cross. And therefore, you don't have to face the wrath of God. Friends, God's invitation to you today is that you would walk with him in the light. And one of my greatest concerns for us, for this particular church family, is that I fear we don't take sin near as seriously as we should. Not only does that limit our joy in God, it limits our fellowship between each other. It keeps us at arm's length from one another. It puts this veneer of niceness over what's actually darkness. It looks like light, but it's unhelpful. It spits on Jesus by saying a sacrifice wasn't really necessary. And so our prayer for you today, this week, as we've searched our own hearts for sin, is that maybe that would stop. Maybe we could together acknowledge God is light. We left to ourselves are darkness. But if we'll admit that, and not once, not when you're eight at VBS and then it's done forever, but if we'll admit that, then we can walk in the light as He is in the light, and His blood will cleanse us from every sin. And we can have deeper, more rich fellowship with God and with each other. God is light. He is pure. He is holy. And He wants to invite you 
to walk in that kind of life with him and with his people. But that necessitates an acknowledgement of sin in order that we could then walk with him. We're going to end today a little different. I'm going to ask Steve if he would go ahead and come. Steve's going to play on the piano. And I would ask you before you leave the room, would you consider where you are at with the Lord? If you're not yet a believer, you can turn to him, receive his forgiveness, begin a life with God. If you're already a believer, have you slipped into that weird, bizarre, strange Christian subculture that says, I don't have sin? If so, would you confess that to him? Would you acknowledge specific things that he would bring to mind? In order that you could walk in the light. And we don't do this often, but I've asked some of our staff and leadership team, if they would just stand around the room, some in the back, some here in the front. And is there something that you would like to go to one of them and confess and ask for prayer for? Maybe you have some questions about something we've talked about today. Maybe you simply need prayer over some issue. They're here and have already done that work in their own hearts and would ask you to take the opportunity to come and visit with them. Or maybe you simply want to turn to somebody sitting next to you and confess sin to them or ask them to help you find a relationship with Christ. But we're going to leave today quietly whenever it's appropriate for you to get up and go. But maybe some of us need to spend a longer amount of time than we normally would in prayer and seeking the heart of God. Let me pray for you, and then I would encourage you to respond in that way and leave whenever is appropriate. Father, you are light, you are pure, you are holy, and that's glorious and wonderful. And we, in and of ourselves, are not. We are people broken, born in sin and then choose to sin. Would you reveal that to us individually in the ways that we need to see it? And would you move us through your spirit to understand how you would want us to respond? And I pray, God, what seems to me to be years and years and years of not naming sin for what it really is, I pray that would stop in this body today. That we would acknowledge it and we would fall at the feet of Christ to become Christians and we would fall at the feet of Christ to walk as Christians. And may we then experience in richness, deepness, gloriousness, fellowship with you and one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray.